Alright, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says, Do not judge, so that no one so that you will not be judged. For in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take out the log of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you to pieces. Barbecue, man. (laughs) Tonight, we're jumping into Matthew chapter 7. And for many of you, that's not an exciting thing, but for those of us who have been here for the past eight months, it's always a good thing to start a new chapter. We have been looking at the greatest sermon ever preached. So we've titled this series, The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we're nearing the end. We've got four messages left, and uh, I just wanted to say that it's been a an amazing study for me personally. Uh, This has changed me. The Word of God has gotten a hold of my heart and left an indelible mark on my soul uh, through this study. And I hope it's been helpful for those of you who have been here as well. If you're newer with us, again, welcome. Thank you for being here. It's great to have you tonight. Uh, It is our habit to gather and to study the Word of God, the Bible, the Scriptures. We believe that it has authority. We believe that it speaks into our life in a very serious way. Um, it has power over us, and it is our habit to dig in deeply to the Scripture. And so we study it book by book, chapter by chapter, sometimes, as in this case, even word by word, in an effort to extract its meaning into mind depths and to find application for our lives. And so at times we move deliberately, slowly, and painfully, but when you're dealing with an infinite God, there's infinite depth. And there's much for us to learn. And so, again, we're glad that you're here for part of this. And that's what this study is about. It's, it's filled with immeasurable truth. And we have just scratched the surface. And so I'm going to be as brief as I can tonight as we embark on this new topic in chapter 7. It is the topic of judging others. Right? Of judging others. And while most of us don't really think that this is a major problem in our life, in fact, we would put this under the category of respectable sins, not that big of a deal. This is a major problem uh, that Jesus identifies, and I would argue that it's in each one of our lives. Suffice it to say this, you judge other people all the time. You're making judgments right now about this message. Is it going to go long tonight? Is it going to be interesting? Is this going to be helpful for me? You're making judgments about all sorts of things. You make judgments about everything that happened Today, maybe you walked into this room tonight, you're immediately, without even thinking, at the speed of thought, making judgments if you're here for the first time about what's this going to be like? Who are these people? Am I going to fit here? Was it a mistake to come here? They seem kind of weird. They got a branch hanging from their ceiling. What is going on in this house? I don't know what's happening. It happens at the speed of thought. You build your own opinions about others based on what they're wearing, how they look at you, how they speak. Let me illustrate this just with a a couple of uh, observations, if you will. How do you judge people? You judge people based on how they dress, what church they attend, what type of music they listen to, whether or not they drink alcohol, if they smoke, if they have a tattoo, who their friends are, whether or not they take notes in a sermon, do they raise their hands during worship, what they post on Instagram or Snapchat, where they work, what type of car they drive, what type of phone they have, what they order at Starbucks, do they have a beard, are they physically fit, are they tall or short? Do they get up early in the morning? Do they stay up late at night? Do they like gluten? I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we judge people based on humorous things like some of those and based on much more serious things. Because it gets bad when we start saying, I can do that better than he can. Right? I, I should be the one leading worship. I should be the one up there preaching. Not him. Well, this is my house, so... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Why does she get the opportunity to lead that small group? I've been saved longer, and I know more than she does. I don't understand why he has a girlfriend, and I don't. 
I've got a better job, I'm better looking, I'm smarter, I just don't get it. And the act of judging in our hearts goes on all the time. And if you take a minute to think about it, you'll see that you're, you're a judgmental person by nature. We all are. There are two places that judging happens reg- regularly and consistently. The two worst places on the planet. The first is in high school. High school is the worst. You walk in, right, down that hallway, and it doesn't matter who you are or what you're doing, there's judgment happening immediately. Should the backpack be on one shoulder or on both shoulders? I, 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 should I have my shoes tied or not tied? It's like you're walking down this thing and all eyes are on you. The only place worse than high school for judgment is where? Not college. People don't care in college. You walk around however you want. It's at church. Church is full of self-righteous, hypocritical people that sit in the pews and look outward judging others. And you know what? This room is full of those type of people, myself leading the way. Christians are ruthless. A place that should be filled with love is often filled with people that have what, what this phrase of here over and over tonight, a critical spirit. The church is filled with people with critical spirits who actively judge others as if this is their spiritual gift. Well, he's got the gift of mercy. That guy can preach. Well, over here, look at that gift of service and helps. I have the gift of a critical spirit. I can point out the problems and flaws in every individual around me. Well, being judgmental is fueled by a very specific sin in your heart. You want to take a guess at what it is? It is the sin of pride that says, at its core, I am better than you. And I will find a way in my mind at the speed of thought to say I dress better, I'm better looking, my hair looks better, I have better clothes, I have better car, whatever it might be, to make yourself feel above and superior to them. And this sin of pride is demonstrated in what's called self-righteousness, which is you elevating yourself onto a position and, and becoming the judge, jury, and executioner that sits in judgment over everybody around you. And you make judgments firing off your gun as if you're God telling people in your own mind and privately to others why you're better and why they're worse than you are. Well, the act of judging others is done in an effort to make yourself look superior. And in this text, Jesus Christ forbids this. He draws it out as a major sin and a major transition point here in the Sermon on the Mount. And just for the sake of context, I won't go deeply into this, but for two chapters, Jesus has been saying this, my kingdom looks like this. My followers do these things. This is their character and the Beatitudes. This is how they relate to the world as salt and light. This is how they relate to the scripture. This is how they relate to their religion in terms of praying and in terms of giving and in terms of fasting. And he goes on and on and on saying, this is what the people that follow me look like and what's characteristic of their life. And ultimately, it's a heart that's humble and broken before God and that loves God more than everything else. And he's contrasting that with the life of the Pharisees who are self-righteous hypocrites who believe that their works and their goodness is enough to save them and grant them favor with God. So that's the, the whole point of this is Jesus just saying, this religion... And what most people on earth believe, which is I can make my way to heaven, I can be okay as long as I do enough good works, is damning people to hell. And and worse, we put this badge of religion and self-righteousness on and think, I'm doing okay. I'm better than all of them. Look at how godly I am. It's exactly what the Pharisees did, and Jesus here condemns that. And so in the passage before us tonight, Jesus wants to help us. Here's the thesis. He wants to help us to develop a careful heart, not a critical spirit. You got that? that? That's just, if you write that down, that's pretty much where we're going to be all night. How do we develop or cultivate a careful or a compassionate or a, a gentle heart as opposed to a critical spirit? Jesus identifies four ways to eliminate the self-righteous spirit, four ways to cultivate a gracious and careful heart towards others. So, I'm going to dive in. We're going to move. Point number one. The first way to develop a careful heart is to, this is going to sound interesting, but is to reflect on the judgment of God. Reflect on the judgment of God. It's in verse one. Look at that verse with me. It says that very first phrase, do not judge. Now the word here used for judge carries with it the idea of passing a verdict, 
typically in the negative sense. It, it is specifically to condemn somebody else. It's not just saying, oh, I like her hair. That's nice. It is, it is actually condemning the person, as it were. Judging another is harsh, judgmental action of belittling or putting down another person out of a sense, self-righteous sense of superiority. And here, Jesus is actually issuing a direct imperative and a command in the present tense. Stop. You're, you're consistently judging others, and he's saying right now, here's my command, stop it. Stop it. And permanently, throughout all of your life, stop judging. Stop putting yourself in the position where God belongs as the judge. Remove yourself from that and let God sit on his throne. Now, I've got to tell you, more than once I've been sitting in a Starbucks. I went there today. Now, let me just ask you a question. When was the last time you ordered something different at Starbucks? Yeah, exactly. I did today because I, don't, I get hot chocolate when I go in there because I don't know what else to order. I go between hot chocolate, the, the spiced apple caramel thing, whatever that is phenomenal and a bottle of water because I don't like to drink coffee but I tried out because of Zach Hazel I tried out iced coffee it's pretty good it's really good I like it a lot anyway so I'm sitting at Starbucks and invariably there's a group of women in there meeting having a conversation maybe they just dropped their kids off at school or they're there for some kind of a, sometimes the Bibles are out and consistently my heart breaks because I hear them talking about somebody else and just, I'm just pounding that person. The way that they parent, the way that they dress on their way to school, the way that they interact with other people. It's this catty, critical, and ladies, you know what I'm talking about because a lot of you struggle with this critical spirit that's in there. Why isn't she involved in the PTA? Why does she wear those socks? Why does she have three kids instead of four? Why, why does she um, not post enough on it? Whatever it might be, it's these crazy things. And they're picking people apart. In that moment, watch this, and we've all done this, they're elevating themselves to the position of judge. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't judge. Don't judge. I, I got to say that we do this all the time. I, I do this. We'll be in the car, and I will be evaluating what happened at church on a Sunday. And I'll be telling Tracy, can you believe the person that did this or how that happened or how the message went like this? And my kids are in the back seat listening to me as I am judging and pulling other people down in a way that isn't helpful, that's sinful and critical. Oh, but we're talking ministry. I'm trying to help those people out. I want to share some prayer requests with you, right? No, not really. Too often we're gossiping with a critical spirit to make ourselves feel better and superior to others. And Jesus is saying that this kind of condemning judgment is incompatible with the life of the Christian. It's such a simple statement. Here, look, read it again. Look back at verse 1. Do not judge. So it's such a simple economy of words. But we do struggle. And so he gives us, gives us the warning. Look at the second half of verse 1. Why not? Why not judge? So that you will not be judged. Simple principle is this. If you judge others, you will be judged. Now, let me ask you a question. Who's going to judge you? It's not talking about those other people, like if you treat them this way, they're going to treat you that way. Who's the judge? God is the judge. God is the judge. Psalm 9-7 says that he has established his throne for judgment. Genesis 18-25 says that he is the judge over all the earth. James 4-12 says that there is only one lawgiver, and one judge. And friends, it ain't you. The one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you who judge your neighbor? When you judge another, you're putting yourself in the place of the one who is able to save and destroy. The one true judge. You put yourself in the very judgment seat of God. Now open your Bibles over to Romans 14. I just want you to see this really quickly. Uh, and maybe we'll turn our, in the scriptures just a little bit tonight. So I think it's good for you to see this in your Bibles. But we want to be careful not to elevate ourselves in self-righteous justification and sit in the place where God belongs. So Romans 14 verse 10 says this, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt, looking down on them? Now here it is. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 
Verse 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. God is the judge. You are not God. You have no right to judge others. Now, I just want to take a quick step aside and give you a little theology of judgment. Is that, is that okay? Take a couple minutes, but I think this will be helpful for you. There are three ways that God judges people. Okay, three ways. The first is this. I'll just call it the eternal judgment. The eternal judgment. This is what you think about when you think of the judgment of God. This is the sheep and the goats, the righteous and the unrighteous, the broad road, the narrow way. This is, this is what determines your standing before God. Revelation 20, 13 says this, they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. It is a judgment of works. Psalm 62, 12 says, for you recompense a man according to what they have done. Matthew 16, 27 says, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Here's the point. Every person will be judged according to their works. But what the Bible says is that there's nothing you can do to live up to the standard of God. We've already broken it and fallen. We all are sinful and therefore every one of us will stand condemned before him. And it's a judgment of works. If you're able to perfectly keep the law of God, guess what? You could go into his presence no problem. But none of us have. None of us have. And so that's why in Christianity we say there was one that lived perfectly. There was one who perfectly kept the law of God, and that was Jesus Christ. And the Puritans used to say, you need an alien righteousness. That means you need somebody to come and give you a, a right heart and a clean heart before God. And that can't happen by your own good works, right? You, you could just work until, until you're a thousand years old and never be able to please God to that level. But Jesus Christ offered himself on our behalf and gave us his perfect life. That's the story of Christianity. He took our sin in his body and paid for it on the cross. So the first judgment is the eternal judgment. The second is this. It's the judgment of discipline. The judgment of discipline. These last two are for believers specifically. It is found throughout the New Testament. It describes the fact that God judges his children. I'll just give you one verse um, to help you with this. But this is in the life of disobedient believers. Hebrews 12.5 says this. God speaking, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the, the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. In short, God spanks his children. He disciplines them. He, when he sees us wandering, he uses circumstances and events and other people to bring us back. In 1 Corinthians 11, People even got sick and died because they were taking communion the wrong way. That was the judgment of God in, in discipline. He desires to conform us to his image, and so he disciplines us to make us more like Christ. Okay, third, the judgment of rewards. The judgment of rewards, also for the Christian. We already read Romans 14, 12, which says, we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is not a judgment to determine whether you're going to go to heaven or to hell. That's already dealt with when you put your faith in Christ. But watch this. This is a judgment to determine what your reward will be in glory. Okay? There's a day coming, Christian, when you will stand before Jesus Christ and he will say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 1 Corinthians 3.14 says that you've done good deeds with proper motive and the power of the Spirit. Then it says this. You will receive a reward. It's pretty cool. You, not just salvation, but an additional reward. First um, Corinthians three eight says that each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Uh, there's different rewards in heaven. I think of it about it this way. Some people talk about. I'll just say this: you go to a concert. I went to the U two concert, and I had a great time. You know where my seats were? Like like nosebleed at the top. But it was phenomenal. Great Western Forum. It was the best show I've ever been to. But my good friend John Stead and his counterpart, Christopher Calvis, you were not there, were you? And Morton, our high school pastor, were down standing where the sweat from Bono is falling onto their faces, etc. And so here's the bottom line. We both walked away feeling like that was an amazing concert. They were fulfilled being right there in the presence of this incredible band. I was farther away, but had just as much of a great experience. And in heaven, it's... I don't, it's not exactly like that, but the rewards are different. 
Does that make sense? That we're all going to be satisfied, fulfilled in the presence of God, but there's a different level of reward based on your effort here on this work, on this work, on this earth. This is why Hebrews 11.26 says that Moses rejected the passing pleasures of sin in Egypt. It says because he was looking to the reward. Or in 11.35 it says that um, some of the people who were imprisoned and even tortured didn't accept the release so they might obtain a better resurrection. It's crazy. Or my favorite is Revelation 14, 13, speaking about this reward. It says of believers who have died, their deeds follow with them. So there's a reward coming for you and for I in the presence of God. Now, I don't want to bog that down anymore. Like I said, that was a side note. But there's a judgment of rewards coming to believers. And back in Matthew 7, here's my point. The reason that you and I are not to judge is so that we will not be judged by God. When you judge another, you put yourself in a position that God will judge you. Okay, we're going to see more of this in verse 2. It's going to flush out a little bit more. But though we are Christians and though we are justified by faith and though we have assurance of our salvation, yet this passage tells us that if we judge others, we will be judged both in this life and also in the next so you could say it differently. When you, when you judge others, you are exposing yourself to judgment. You won't lose your salvation, but you will lose something. Okay, point number two. So, so if you're going to develop a careful heart, be wary of the judgment of God in your life. Point number two, evaluate others graciously. If you're going to develop a careful heart, you must evaluate others graciously. Look at verse two. Jesus says this, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. It's pretty clear, and it's pretty scary. You, friend, will be held to the same standard by which you judge others. And what the same standard you hold them to is what you'll be held to. And this is tough because, again, secretly, you think you're pretty hot stuff, right? We view ourselves as better than others. And we elevate ourselves to a position of superiority from which, from which we look down on others. We delight in criticizing others. We have conversations and text message wars criticizing other people. We glory when people fail. We look for faults and search for weak points because it makes us feel better about ourselves. That's our human nature. That's our self-righteousness and pride rearing its ugly head. Let me give you a quick test to see how you evaluate others and whether or not you do it graciously. Just take this test in your minds. Do you judge others without having all the facts? Well, he always shows up late to Bible study. That dude needs to get a watch and an Apple watch so that he can be here on time. He's going to meet my standard. What you don't know is that he comes straight from work in a 12-hour day, doesn't stop to get dinner, and comes in the back door just to be here. And there you are judging without having all the facts. How about this one? Do you make your convictions equal with divine revelation. Well, I, uh, I saw him having a drink the other night. Poor guy. Probably not even saved. Right? You, you, you elevate what's a conviction in your heart to the level of what Scripture says. Well, I just saw it on Instagram. He got another tattoo. Poor soul. I wonder, uh, how's he going to explain that at the gates of heaven? Right? We, we kind of go through these things where we, we just elevate what we think is important to the level of what God has said. And it's wrong. Do you get involved when it has nothing to do with you? Situation going on over here, and all of a sudden you're, you're throwing in, going, yeah, I agree with her. She's much better. And, and you get involved in a situation where you should just stay out of it. Do you assume others' motives are judged without having all the facts? We do this all the time. You look at a situation and decide they, that, well, based on what I'm seeing, I know what that person's motive is. When really you can't see their heart, and you don't know what's going on there. Well, you'll find in most of these cases that our judgment comes in a way that favors ourself. Now, anybody know who, who uh, Mike Krzyzewski is? Okay, he's the coach of who? Duke, okay, good. Three of you know. Now, he's one of the most winning coaches in NCAA history, okay? He's 69 and just signed a contract that goes out to 2019-2020. I, I, it's just crazy. He's, he's just going to fall over dead on the court. But if you, if you were to go to Blue Devil Stadium... Um, you find that it's a very small stadium compared to a lot of the other NCAA Division I schools. And it's that way purposely. Because they want it's a supply and demand thing. 
And part of the excitement around Duke basketball is it's tough to get tickets. And when you get in there, the people are rabid. So the student body will, in waiting to buy tickets, will camp out on the, on the quad in the lawn for a week with tents. And at any given point before the, the, the game, at any given point during the day, they'll come out and blow an air horn. And if you don't get there within five minutes and sign your name to the list, you're eliminated. You just crossed right off. So if you left to go to class and then came back and they blew that horn, you're done. Okay, bigger games are so popular and so many people want to sign up that they, even at that point, when you get on that list, that list only puts you into a lottery from which your name may be pulled to get tickets. This is just a crazy deal. So some researchers did the study to determine how much students thought their tickets were worth for these very popular sold-out type games. And so they were approached, those who, who um, won the lottery and had this ticket in their hands saying, what would you sell that ticket for? You just spent a week on the lawn, you made it through the lottery, you finally got this, what would you sell that ticket for? And the average price, 2400 bucks. Yeah, it's pretty good. Then they contacted the students who waited out there, but didn't get a ticket. Okay? All through that, didn't get the ticket for whatever reason. They were asked how much they would be willing to spend to buy one of those tickets. Average cost, $170. Okay? The, there's a little bit of a discrepancy there, and my point in the illustration is that we typically overvalue ourselves and our position relative to others. You have a ticket in your hand, it's worth 2400 bucks. You don't have it, it's worth 170 It's all based on your position, and your judgment is relative to your position around with other people. We want to take care of ourselves first, right? We have this illusion that we're better than those around us and deserve more than they do, so we hold out... We put them to a higher standard than even what we hold ourselves to. But Jesus says this. Look at verse 2. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. That's a scary phrase. The Greek word for measure there is the word metron, like metric system, right? And, uh, and so I started thinking about this. The measure, the way that you measure something is how you'll be measured. So I, I just want to show this to you because I came back from a, a trip, a business trip, and I bought these little Russian nesting dolls for my girls, okay? And they're pretty cool, okay? Let me just, let me just lay them out. Because you're going to think they look like pretty cheap nesting dolls until you realize that they're actually measuring cups, okay? And I love these things because you can never find measuring cups. Am I right, ladies? And it's just difficult. <laughs> and so, like, this guy right here is like a half a cup probably. Yep. I knew it right there, shelves. Okay, so <laughs> these are always available when, when we're baking. And the girls and I will make creme brulee or chocolate souffle or cookies. We've got this short list of things that Dad can make. And, uh, and so this is what our sugar and our flour container looks like. Okay? And they take their little hands, and the bigger this thing gets, the more difficult it is. Mm-hmm. The more difficult it is to get it into this. And so when they go to measure things, their little hands can't quite get there, and they always come up short of the full measurement. And invariably, they'll look at me and they'll say, is that good, Dad? How's that? Is that okay? And I'll say, well, yeah, if you want the recipe to come out wrong, you don't want taste right. There's a reason that it's a half a cup, right? And, and particularly with sugar, we need a lot of sugar and, and we make sure that the sugar's all the way full. Uh, my favorite two expressions in cooking are a heaping teaspoon and when brown sugar is packed, okay? And, and I'll tell you why, because and, and in terms of what Jesus is saying, he's saying that how you measure other people will be your standard of measure. So if you're always going, oh, they're about three quarters full. That's all I'm giving them credit for. They're not that good. You're holding them to a very tight standard, but not fully allowing it to be at the top level is a dangerous thing. But I love the expression, heaping teaspoon or packed brown sugar, especially the packed brown sugar, because you take that and you fill it up and it goes over the top. But then what do you do with it? Guys, you pack it down. You press it and it goes down below. And then you put more in there until it's perfectly smooth. It's this idea of just packing. And it gives, it gives me the thought in this particular situation, uh, uh, from a measurement standpoint, that, that we want to measure higher, not lower. But let me just ask the question on, on all this, because I think it's good visual. How do you measure other people? What is your standard of measure? Do you scrutinize and examine every fault and minor defect in their lives? Do you nitpick and search out every weakness? They just don't measure up to your standard. Or do you give them the benefit of the doubt and extend grace to them? We often forget how badly and how desperate we are for grace. 
and we don't extend it to others. We give it to them sparingly when we need heaps of it in our own lives. This is why James says in James 2.12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Listen, for judgment will be merciless to one who shows no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Again, the way that you judge others will be the measure of your own judgment. If you judge others without mercy, the judgment that comes to you will also be merciless. By your standard measure, it will be measured to you. And this just got me sitting and thinking, how many people have I judged unfairly in my life? How often does it happen that we criticize another and have a critical spirit towards them, judging them based on my view of the world? I, I judge people based on the way I see them parenting their kids. I judge people, and, and a man particularly, by the way that he preaches. I judge all sorts of things uh, that I shouldn't be judging, and I know you do the same thing. How are you guilty of, of judging others harshly? The truth of the matter is we hold others to a hypocritical standard because we have higher expectations for them than we demand of ourselves. So true and so dangerous. Romans 2 verse 1 says this, Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Be careful. Be careful if you're going to judge something else and then not live in that same way. There's a story in the Old Testament of a cruel king named Adonai Bezek. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, to Judges chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says this. Just listen, this is crazy. Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off. This man cut off, he, he, he conquered the kingdoms and he cut off their thumbs, the kings, and their big toes. And it says this, and they used to gather up scraps under my table. And then it says this, as I have done, so God has repaid me. And he had his thumbs and his big toes cut off and he gathered the scraps. Esther chapter 7 talks about Haman who built a gallows so he could hang the innocent Mordecai. But who ended up hanging on that very gallow? But, but Mordecai himself. There's a strange sense of irony in both those situations as they received the same standard of measure that they had given others. So what can we learn from this? We can learn to develop a careful heart, compassionate heart, and not a critical spirit. We don't, want to, we don't want to measure others in a stingy and self-righteous way. Let me, let me just give you some scripture to help how you should treat others. Here you go. Ephesians 4.32 says it great. Be kind to one another. Watch this. Tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Colossians 3.12. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Peter 3.8. Be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Friend, be careful. Be careful that you exercise generosity in your judgment. Be careful that um, you evaluate others in a gracious way and you will develop a gracious spirit. Point number three, beware of the blinding effects of self-righteousness. Beware of the blinding effects of self-righteousness. Look at verse 3. And you know what? We're all self-righteous. This, this is crazy. This hits right at the heart. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, but behold, the log is in your own eye? These verses serve to probe the motives of our judging others. Look at the questions that Jesus asks. It's a question of why. Why do you look at the speck? And, and how can you say this? He, he's giving us the motivation behind why we judge. The reason in a nutshell that we judge others is because we're self-righteous people who view ourselves more highly than we ought. And watch, you and I are blind to our own sin, oftentimes. Now let me point out a couple things in the text. He says, look at the speck in your brother's eye. A speck is just another word for a splinter. Or, you know, you're, they're out throwing up the, um, the wheat into the air so the chaff will go away, and, and just a little piece of straw comes down and gets stuck in your eye. This is just a, a piece of dirt. It's a, it's a grain of sand. It's something that, a minute particle that gets jammed in your eye. And Jesus uses this term, this speck, as an illustration to represent sin in the life of a believer. 
Okay? And while you can say, well, this represents the small sin, and the log represents the big sin, that doesn't necessarily mean that the small sin is insignificant. Have you ever gotten something stuck in your eye before? What does that do to you? It drives you crazy. You have to fix it. You're trying everything, washing it out with water, bottles of water after bottle of water. You've got your eye peeled open. It's bloodshot. You feel like you're about to rub it right out of your head. You don't even know what to do, right? It's so frustrating. It's a major inconvenience, and it stops you dead in your tracks, even though it is small and insignificant. Actually, I would say it's small, but very significant, right? We must remember that all sin... All sin is an offense to God. All sin is loathful in His sight. All sin is damning and has the power to send men and women to hell. There are no white lies. There are no little sins. All sin is rebellion against Him. And it may just be an irritant in your eye, but it is grievous in the eyes of God. So let's just say this for the purpose of argument. Let's say tonight that the sin of the speck that's in your eye is a sin of pornography, or the sin of laziness, or of lying, or of gossip. Okay? I'm purposely picking those because we wouldn't put those up there as small sins. Okay? There's some significant weight to those sins. Now look at verse 3. You come along and it says this. You look at the speck in your brother's eyes, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Okay, So here you go and all of a sudden it says you've got a, the, the Greek word is a beam or a piece of timber. It's like a tree falls over and boom, right into your eye. In our words... We would say it's a two-before, okay? It's a two-before sticking right out of your eyes, according to George Shack. And it's just sticking out eight feet in front of you. And you're walking around, and people are ducking, trying to get out of the way from this thing, just swinging around, and you don't even know it's there. You're just like, dude, you got something in your eye. What's the problem over there? I see you're trying to get that out. Let me help you. And you're trying to walk up, and you hit him in the head with your piece of wood, and it's like, what the heck is going on here? Jesus is obviously purposely exaggerating to make his point clear. There's a much greater sin happening in your eye than happening to the person that's struggling with those issues that I laid out. What, what again, I mean, what, what is the sin that is so great that it, that it constitutes a log coming out of your eyes? What's so much greater? Why does he use that? What can you say compared to pornography or gossip or laziness? What sin could be considered a speck versus a log? Here it is. Are you ready? This is the whole point. It's the sin of self-righteousness. It's the sin of hypocrisy. It's the sin that, that looks at somebody else and says, I don't need to deal with any problem in my life. I'll deal with your problem and your problem and your problem. I'm perfectly fine pointing out everybody else's issue, but I'm never shining a spotlight into my own heart. It's the person that thinks they're better than others. It's the person who doesn't need help because they've got it all figured out. They, they have a hypercritical spirit and, and yet, at the same time, they've got a two-by-four sticking right out of their eye, and they don't even know it. They are so blind to their sin that they come up to a person who's really struggling, working through a, a different sin issue in their life, and they say, Hey, I see that you've got an issue in your life. Let me help you, because I'm better than you, and I know more than you, and I've been a Christian longer, and clearly I can come to your aid. I see your pornography. I see your gossip. It's repulsive. It needs to be dealt with. And in a condescending manner, they approach the situation as if they are the eye doctor ready to fix your problem. Have you ever done this? We all have. We've all looked down at another person saying, I can't believe they're like that. Or can you believe she did this or he's doing that? That's the problem. But here's the kicker. When you're doing that, you're completely blind. You can't see anything. And in fact, not only are you blind, but you don't even recognize that you're blind. That's even worse. And ultimately, you don't recognize your need. It's like the Pharisee in Luke 18 who said, God, he's praying, I thank you that I'm not like this swindler or this tax collector or this dude over here. Thank you for making me better, basically. Or Luke 5.31, Jesus says this, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick, right? I've not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So here's, here's Jesus saying, you don't even think you have a problem. Here you are living your religious life going to church, doing all the right things, but you're judging others in a self-condemning or, or a condemning critical way. And Jesus is saying, you're totally missing the point. You are blinded by your sin. The Pharisees didn't come to Jesus because they didn't think they had a need. Some of you don't come to Jesus because you don't recognize the sin in your own heart. 
You go through the day thinking, I'm doing okay. Got up on time today, went to work, didn't get in trouble, got, get, kept my schedule, actually went to the gym, ate well today, saw a couple friends, went home to visit my mom. Everything is pretty good. I'm doing pretty well. Don't see that you have a need. Don't recognize that you're blind. Instead, you justify yourselves and condemn others. This is what we do. We think we're okay. We live a squeaky clean life, right? I don't drink. I don't do drugs. I got a steady job. I go to church. I even give some money. And we're comparing ourselves to other people and not to the standard, which is the Word of God. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you guys. This is true of my life. We prop ourselves up in a spirit of self-righteousness. We fail to recognize our need before God. Listen, 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 listen. You are a desperate sinner, a wicked sinner. So am I. And we are in dire need, desperate need of the grace of God. We cannot live without it. When we forget that, we, we are living in, in self-righteousness, thinking we're okay. We need His grace every moment of the day. And when we ignore our own sin, and we catalog and point out the sin of others, we put ourselves in a really bad place. And so Jesus here is saying, stop it. Stop judging others. Stop it. Stop pointing out the sin in their life and ignoring the sin in your own life. Stop trying to fix their problems when you are full of sin yourself. Get the log of self-righteousness out of your eye. Think about your own life, deal with your own sin, and then you can help them. This is a tough one. I, I don't know if this is hitting any of you where you're at with this, but I just look and I go, man, I do this so often. So often. I judge people based on appearance or what they say. And at the end of the day, I just want to encourage you to recognize your sin. Bow before the Lord. Deal with it. Then you can help others. So, okay, point number four. Let me bring this to a close. It says this. Point number four, I'm sorry. It says, is be discerning as you judge others. Be discerning as you judge others. I struggle with naming this point because there's two different thoughts that are two opposite sides of, of the uh, bookshelf, and I'll try to give you both halves. The first, the first bookshelf end is in verse 5, and the second is in verse 6. And it requires a level of discernment if you're going to actually judge others properly. So Jesus said in verse 1, don't judge, and here in verse 5 and 6, he says, do judge. So let me just try, try to explain this. Verse 5 says this, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, there, there's still an expectation that you will help your brother. Did you get that? He doesn't just say, get the log out of your eye. He says, get the log out of your eye so that you can help get the speck out of your brother's eye. There's an expectation that you're going to get your heart right and then go back to work in the kingdom. Take the necessary steps to straighten out your own life before God, then come help your brother. Now, how do you do this? Very simply. How do you get sin out of your life? I think I've got three or four things here. First, you've got to admit that you have a sin problem. That's it. You've got to admit that you're a wicked sinner. And most of us don't see our, ourselves rightly because we compare ourselves to others instead of comparing ourselves to the holiness of God. You need to admit that you have a sin problem. That's a big one. David said in Psalm 51.4, against you and you only I have sinned. And then what is evil in your sight? Second, every one of us needs to humble ourselves before God. Recognize your sin and come humbly in His presence. 1 Peter 5.5 5 says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Third, you need to repent. I need to repent. We need to turn from that sin and walk the opposite direction. Put it in the rearview mirror and get away from it. Fourth, confess it before men. If you struggle publicly, confess your sin publicly. Why are you hiding it? Like Zacchaeus, go and pay back fourfold. Make it right. Fifth, well, that's, that was fourth. Okay, so yeah, fifth, purpose in your life to live differently. Make changes. Make changes and put that stuff away and now live in a way that honors Christ. Get the log out. Deal with it. And when your heart is cleansed and a sin's been removed from your life, you can see clearly. And verse 5 says that now you'll be able to help your brother. Now you'll be able to bear their burden. I often come to this passage, and I know a lot of you do too. When you see sin in another person and you're thinking, I, I think I need to confront that sin. Matthew 18 tells me, if I see a brother or a sister in sin, I need to go to them, right? And you're just going through that mental gymnastics of when do I go and how do I go? I, my heart always goes here. I know some of you are in the same place because I want to make sure that when I go, I go with the right heart. So I'm praying, God, I know that I'm supposed to go and confront. I know I'm supposed to go and restore that person and point out their sin so that we, I, 
they'll be restored to you. And you've given me this, this view into their life, not so I can sit here and criticize them, but so that I can help them. So the first thing I do is I come to this passage. Why? Because I want to examine my own heart. I want to get the sin out of my own life. I want to take the log out so I can do delicate eye surgery on them, right? And then to do it in a gracious way. Christians are sometimes called to have difficult conversations, to point out sin, to help those who are struggling. But never, never do you point out sin in another until you've done work in your own heart before God. And then you come in a spirit of compassion, humility, gentleness. Hey, some of you right now, these last weeks, have been putting off a hard conversation. There's something that you've seen. God has shown you. The Spirit of God has put on your heart. You've looked at a friend or a coworker or somebody in your you're like, i got to say something. They don't see this sin. I just want to call you tonight to obey the scripture and to go. Get your heart right and go and help your brother. The Spirit of God didn't reveal their sin to you so you could sit on the sidelines and talk to others about it, but so you could go and help them. Like an eye doctor dealing with the problem they have in their eye. Okay? So that's, that's the first side of this bookend, which is you will judge. Because you're going to go and say, I see something in this person's life, and you're making a judgment that I need to go and help them, right? So there's a judgment there. But, but the other side of the bookshelf is in verse 6. And he closes this section by saying, Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Now what in the world does that mean, and what does that have to do with this text? Okay, This is there for a reason, and it makes total sense. There, there is a place, again, on this side of the bookshelf for judgment in the life of the believer. Now watch, because here you are, and there needs to be a level of discernment. This person over here gets a tender care, gentle. There's an irritant in your eye. Let me come and graciously help to get that out of there in a loving and careful way. That's this side. Verse 6 is the far opposite extreme. This is somebody that's described in the text as a dog, a wild, savage animal, an unclean animal, or a swine. The very worst of the worst of the unclean animals in the Jewish mind. There's nothing worse than these people. And it says that... that um, you're not going to throw what's holy to these dogs, right? You're not going to take the sacrifice that was offered to God and go out and offer this pack of mongrels on the street. You wouldn't give what is holy to the profane. It makes no sense. And you wouldn't give valuable pearls to pigs. Why would you give pearls into a pigsty? They're in there scavenging for pods and food in the mud. Why are you putting pearls in there? It makes no sense. If they do happen to pick one of those things up and chew on it, it's like biting into a kernel of corn. It's going to break your teeth, and you're going to be so angry... Why are you eating corn in the first place? <laughs> Popcorn. It, then you got to get the floss out. It's always stuck in there. I just don't understand corn. Unless it's kettle corn, because there's so much sugar on that, that it makes it worthwhile. But anyway, side the point. But it says here that the pigs may even get angry and turn and tear you to pieces. Why, why are you giving them these valuable pearls? Give the pearls to your wife, okay? And give the pigs the pig food, okay? That's, that's what we got going on here. But the point is this. Here, here's where it is. When you present the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of salvation to men and women, and they turn and look at you and ridicule you and persecute you and make fun of you and go through all these things, like how could you believe that? You're so stupid. This is ridiculous. It is, in, in this expression, giving what is holy to the profane or giving pearls to swine. And there comes a point where Jesus is saying, it's a command, don't do this. There's a point on this side of that bookend where you are to make a judgment and say, at this point, prayerfully before the Lord, I am no longer going to them with the gospel. They're done. I have this treasure of the word of God that I've been charged to guard, 1 Timothy 1. And I will not present this to those who are going to just ridicule and make fun of my God. And I will pull back. And it's kind of crazy that Jesus is saying this, but this is the case in Scripture. There's a point where you need to end the mockery and protect God's word. Listen, listen, let me just verify. Acts 13, 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said this. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, speaking to the Jews, since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, in other words, we're done with you. And he says this, we are turning to the Gentiles. The word came to you first. You rejected it. Guess what? Goodbye. We're going over here. Okay? Or Acts 18.6. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. This is Jesus saying, leave the city, shake off the dirt, and then go somewhere else. 
So there's a point, Christian, where you're making a judgment, and if it's a soft-hearted person, you're taking the speck out of the eye, it's very gentle. But if it's a hard-hearted person, you're actually rejecting in that judgment, saying, I'm leaving you in your sin. Difficult place to be, and one that needs to be considered prayerfully and discerned as needed. So, I'm done. I have no conclusion. I ran out of time. But I want to ask you a couple questions. How are you doing in the area of judging others? In the critical spirit. Jesus has given us a very simple command. And if you take nothing away but that, do not judge others lest you be judged. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Are you cultivating a critical spirit or a careful heart? Are you looking for the well-being of others or are you looking to cut others down and make yourself look good? Listen, we all struggle with this. And the application can go in a myriad of ways in each of your lives. So I'm not going to press it. But I, I, I'm, my prayer is that God will help us as we seek to honor Him in the way that we judge others. So, final thought. If you are to develop a careful heart and not a critical spirit, there are four things He gives us. You need to reflect on the judgment of God. You need to evaluate others graciously. You need to be aware of the blinding effects of self-righteousness. And you need to be discerning as you judge others. All right. Let's pray and we're done. Father, thank you for your word. And even in a passage like this one that is difficult, (laughs) difficult to study, difficult to put into a message format, and even difficult for us to hear because we struggle with this sin, I just ask that you would convict our hearts and that you would direct us into areas of our life that need to change. Forgive us for being critical. Forgive us for judging others. Forgive us for putting ourselves on the throne that belongs to you. Humble us tonight, Lord. Humble us and make us gracious. We have received grace. Help us to give that grace out to others. Thank you for your love that is greater than all of our sin. That even as we struggle in this area, even still, you forgive us and provide a way of escape from our sins through Christ. We love you. We're thankful for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.